Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to our Sunday Zoom gathering. We're glad that you're with us this Sunday morning, whether it is live via Zoom or sometime later on via our uh, podcast. We're glad that you've taken the time out to join us. We are continuing in our Ecclesia series through the Book of Acts that we began last summer in 2019, and we've picked it up here in 2020, and we've made our way to Acts chapter 12. And so if you want to turn to Acts chapter 12 in your Bible, either in electronic form or in print, we'd love to have you follow along with us. We're going to work our way through the entire chapter, so we're going to kind of hit some of the highlights here. It's one of those stories that we kind of have to take all together here in order to see and understand what Luke is trying to accomplish through that. Um, This is a famous story of a prison break and also of a very famous leader. His name was Herod. This is the Herod we are dealing with here in Acts chapter 12 is the third Herod that we've encountered here in the Second Testament, the first. Uh, By the way, this one is called Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. He was the one, Herod the Great, who ruled in the days of Jesus's birth, the one who was crazy enough to go after and try to kill all the male children under the age of three. And when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided between his three surviving sons, Archelaus, (laughs) Philip, and Antipas. And Archelaus was like his, um, like his father, was a very violent man. And you have to be pretty violent for Rome to charge you, which he was, with cruelty in the manner in which he governed Judea. And so he was subsequently banished by Caesar to the island of Gaul. Uh, not to the region of Gaul, not the island of Gaul, the region of Gaul. And then the second son, Philip, when he died, His region was granted to this young up-and-coming man named Herod Agrippa. That's the one we are dealing with today. He's the nephew of Herod Antipas. He was the one, the second one, Herod Antipas, was the one who had a role in the trial of Jesus. And soon afterward, Herod Antipas was forced into exile for his misdeeds. So basically everything, all three of the Tetrarchs were combined together and were awarded to this up-and-coming youngster named Herod Agrippa. And here's the man that we are dealing with today. And his kingdom, at this time in the book of Acts, the kingdom of Herod Agrippa was nearly as large as the kingdom of his grandfather, Herod the Great. So this is a very powerful and influential man who had the backing of Rome. So that is the backdrop of the story. So when you introduced, I want you to make sure that you understand who we're talking about here, talking about the grandson of Herod the Great, the nephew of Herod Agrippa, the one who uh, put Jesus on trial. And now he has um, taken all the power and he has put it together and centralized it again. All right. And we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, ask a few questions, and then we'll kind of work our way through, all right? If you want to follow along, Acts chapter 12, Common English Bible. About the time King Herod began, about that time, King Herod began to harass some who belonged to the church. He had James, John's brother, killed with a sword. 
So we have a God who's omnipotent. He's in all-powerful God. And yet, for some reason, he does not prevent what you might call the untimely death of some of his choicest servants. We saw that in chapter 7, right? First in Stephen. And now here's our second story, our second named, we'll call it our second named um, martyr in James. There were a number in chapter 8 that are mentioned that were just um, executed by Saul. They're unnamed, but we have now James. And James just passed over in a brief sentence, but Stephen, as we saw, got an entire chapter on his death. And he wasn't even an apostle. Why do you think that Luke just makes a passing reference of something as maybe significant as one of these key disciples, now apostles, being executed, being summarily executed? Any thoughts on just the passing reference as opposed to an entire chapter for Stephen who wasn't even an apostle? Anyone? I mean, when I read the passage, it seems like the author's main emphasis is to really show the, the bloodlust of the Jews at the time, that it really pleased them. So maybe he de-emphasized James to really elevate that point. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Other thoughts? Does it seem strange to you? Yeah. One of the things that's a little bit weird is just the wording, because I don't think of harassing and killing as being the same thing. Right. So it sounds like he's just going to say like that King Herod was like saying some mean things, but then he's like, oh, this person was killed with the sword. Yeah, he had him killed with the sword, yeah. Yeah, it's like he stepped it up a few yeah. notches. He went from harassing. Right slash persecuting to actually murdering people. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, think it, I think you're right. I mean, I think remembering now that this uh, Luke's account, this historical account is his second writing. He's already written the gospels, right? Luke has already written his gospel. So this is something in the neighborhood of 40 years after um, the events. And so you might expect that everybody in that region knew what had happened to James. So it's not like, I don't think it's almost like, I don't feel like it's a slap in the face, so to speak, as it is like, okay, y'all know about that story, but let me tell you now the rest of something that happened that you may not have heard of. And that's what we're going to read now as we keep going here in verses three and four. So when he says, when he, the referring back to King Herod, when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter as well. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. Verse 4, he put Peter in prison, handed him over to four squads of soldiers, 16 in all, who guarded him. He planned to charge him publicly after the Passover. While Peter was held in prison, the church offered earnest prayers to God for him. So as we think about it for a moment, is there a difference between the persecution that we've been seeing under Saul earlier on in the book of Acts as we've led up to this chapter? Is there a difference between the persecution from Saul and from Herod? If so, what is it and maybe why? Maybe there's some understanding. Is it different and why might it be different? Or in your opinion, why do you think it is or is not different 
than the persecution we'd seen from Saul. It seems like um, persecuting these Christians now, Herod Agrippa was kind of looking for affirmation and uh, praise by the Jews. And so he was responding to their pleasure at the killing of uh, James and by going further. And uh, Paul or Saul at that time seemed just to be motivated by a pure sense of we need to get these people out of here because they're heretics. Yeah, I love that. So Saul is out of this sincere, and though we know now, he understands misguided religious conviction, right? And then Herod, you might say, has purely political motivations. Is that a fair way to sum it up, Holly? Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Uh, I was thinking along with Holly's lines was, um, he, he seemed like he was kind of getting the top. And if you tackle the top, if you get rid of the top, then the other ones that are following will, will run away, basically. They're, they're going to either run away out of fear or just, you know, hey, our leaders are gone. Yeah, good idea, yeah. Head of the snake, is that what they call it? It yeah. seems to have moved from the, the Jewish religious sect now to a state, a government type of uh, persecution. So it's ramping up. Yeah. And if you remember, the, Herod, the Herods, those tetrarchs that were put in place by Rome were, their first allegiance was to Rome, right? But they had some tangential connection to Israel and to Judaism in order to appease the people they were ruling, right? So there is that a, a sense of political expediency. Um, and so you're definitely seeing maybe more toward that, uh, a move toward that uh, political side of things. So why do you think Peter's arrest pleased the Jews? <laughs> why did it please the Jews? It's a big mouth. <laughs> because yeah. oh, he had a big mouth that's a good one <laughs> okay someone else may be doing their dirty work for them quote unquote their dirty work for them okay they could keep their their proverbial hands clean of it but remove an agitator maybe right mm -hmm. what does that tell us if anything about the religious climate in jerusalem at this time it was very political Political in the sense of? Um, they saw these apostles as threats to the kind of, a kind of Jewish kingdom they wanted. So they wanted them gone. Yeah. Not only that, it, 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 uh, they were not willing to give up their perceived power and authority with Jewish community. Well, they saw they saw these apostles as threats to that. Good for the movement. So the text tells us that Peter was arrested. <clears throat> excuse me, he was arrested during the days of unleavened bread or the the festival of unleavened bread. So you know, Passover is at the end of that days of unleavened bread. 
So we're looking at, it gives us a nice timeline. This is in uh, almost exactly a year, right, from the events that took place at the Passover in the upper room, that last days of Jesus, right? And it tells us that Peter was arrested during the days of unleavened bread, and Passover is the end of that festival. Why do you think that Herod decided to delay executing Peter? I mean, do you think there was any motivation behind that, anything behind that, and the fact that Luke takes the time to identify when it's taking place? What's that supposed to tell us about the whole scenario, about the scene? Well, Passover is not really a good time to kill Jews, <laughs> considering <laughs> the whole theme of Passover was when the Jews were saved. So to kill a Jew on Passover would probably be pretty bad politically. Good, good answer. Yeah, that's great. Other thoughts? His motivation, it kind of clued him in a little bit, right? So when he saw that this pleased the Jews, you get the sense that he's acting and doing everything he can to keep them happy. And that's a good observation, Dan. You probably don't want to mess with that at this particular point. Any does, other practical reasons besides those? Does it show uh, some sort of uh, respect for their traditions? Yeah, so there's a sense in which he's, he's um, I guess you could say, he's showing how scrupulously he is as a Jew. He's observing the Passover and he's keeping the tradition. He's trying to identify with them. Again, a political move here. Do you think that there's a danger of a riot or anything here in the midst of all of this? You've got a lot of people there for the Passover. You get on the wrong side of the masses. We've seen that happen before, right? Don't you think also that um, because the Passover is such a huge deal that, that their focus is on the Passover. So even if he had put Peter to death or tried him at that point, they, he wouldn't have the attention that he wanted because everybody's focused on the Passover. That's great. He wanted to wait till he had the full attention of the Jewish population, right? And that wouldn't be it. Excellent. In but today's terms... In today's term, he's waiting for the new news cycle. Right, that's exactly right. He's waiting for the news cycle to switch over. Well done, Curtis. Yeah, so he's arrested, he's put in prison, and he's under guard of four squads, 16 men. Luke goes out of his way to identify four squads, 16 men. Does that seem like an overly high security detail for a simple fisherman? It does to me. So why? Well, because Jesus didn't have that many, and he rose again, and he wasn't in the tomb anymore. So maybe they want to make sure that he stays put. <laughs> yeah, like, true. maybe not worried about necessarily, like, him escaping. Like, that he's going to get past all those guards, but he knows a lot of people on the outside that might try to come in and rescue him, maybe. Right. True. Like, Any other how thought? many people heard him speak at Pentecost? Mm -hmm. Sure. He's got a lot of friends who could come help him, right? Yeah. Any other ideas? Let me remind you, you probably wouldn't remember, and it's not, it's hard to remember all these details, but in Acts chapter 5, we looked at this back last year. In Acts chapter 5, he already has escaped Herod's prison once. So in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 to 21, he escaped prison. So fool me once. How does that go? Fool me once, shame on me. Wait, fool me once, shame. I forget how it goes, but you get the point, right? 
The second time around, he's not going to be made a fool of. So he puts in plenty of people, chains them to it, and says, there's no way anything's going to happen here. And the last thing I noticed about that, it says that, uh, that the disciples were earnest in their prayers. What do you think he means by that? What is, what is he trying to describe there? What does it earnest prayer look like for these believers in your minds? It sounds like maybe they were genuinely rattled by Peter's imprisonment. Like he was sort of the head of the early church and it's kind of like, you know, if a family member or like other important person in society were imprisoned, you would, you would be like concerned and like wringing your hands and concern for that person. Yeah, try, sometimes we have to try to put ourselves in their sandals, right? They, they already knew that James was put to death and Peter was in prison. Do you think there was a sense in which they were worried about themselves and, and the fact that they might also be imprisoned? And so that certainly might affect the earnestness of your prayers, don't you think? Yeah, yeah if they can take Peter, then they can come after us. Exactly, right? And their response to that, of course, that persecution is prayer. And that's going to be an important piece in verse 5 that he just kind of throws in that's going to show up again later in the story, that they're earnestly praying. And that word earnest, ektenos in Greek, it's a medical term. It's like this idea, it's a picture of someone stretching out all they can for something, reaching as far as you possibly can here. So they're it's the same word, by the way, that Luke used to describe the agonizing prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this isn't, oh, Lord, wow, something seems to be happening here. Can you help us out here? This is something more along the lines of what Jesus was doing in the Garden that actually brought blood from his body, right? This is an earnestness of this could be the end if something doesn't happen here, right? So now we pick up in verse chapter 12, verse 6. Let's keep going with the story, and we'll move right along here. Uh, verses 6 through 10. The night before, Herod was going to bring Peter's case forward. Peter was asleep between two soldiers and bound with two chains, with soldiers guarding the prison entrance. So you got this picture, right? He's chained up. There's 16 guards here. They're all protecting him. And in verse 7, suddenly an angel from the Lord appeared and a light shone in the prison cell. After nudging Peter on his side to awaken him, the angel raises him up and said, quick, get up. The chains fell from his wrists. The angel continued, get dressed, put on your sandals. Peter did as he was told. The angel said, put on your coat and follow me. Following the angel, Peter left the prison. However, he didn't realize the angel had actually done all of this. He thought he was seeing a vision. Verse 10, they passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And after leaving the prison, they proceeded the length of one street when abruptly the angel was gone. This is the first of two angelic appearances in this chapter. And um, what, if anything, stands out to you, read that, about the angel's interaction with Peter here? Does anything kind of stand out to you or you, you kind of go, well, that's an interesting uh, inclusion or exclusion or however you want to say it from this? Anybody? The, the angel actually said almost, not verbatim, but exactly the same thing that back 
when they, uh, the Israelites were going to get out of Egypt, um, have your, they're, they're eating the Passover meal, which I guess Peter really didn't get to have unless two chains help, you know, help serve or something. But, uh, the angel said exactly what they were supposed to do. Be ready. Get your clothes on, get your sandals on. Let's go. We're getting delivered here. And so that's an excellent catch because I I think that's exactly what we're supposed to see. Remember, it's the Passover, the unleavened bread. Unleavened bread celebrates, right? That that Mm. whole piece there celebrates the Exodus. And we're having a similar Exodus from Peter, right? Good for the church, the leader of the church. Good. Others. Always like, Hurry up, let's go, and instead of just like, you know, uh, being lifted up in a beam of light and set down somewhere else, they're like literally making an escape. Yeah. Dan? I was going to say, it's interesting that um, on all of the other accounts, it's usually like, do not be afraid, I am so-and-so, like there's none of that. It's just a get up, get going. Yeah, yeah. Courtney, what, yeah. what's uh, Peter doing when the angel shows up? He was asleep, which was a good thing, really. I mean, he, I think he, he had that faith in God that, that something was going to happen, or if not, you know, it's okay. <laughs> That's not even. Exactly. There was a lot of uh, doing and not a lot of questioning. That's right. Excellent. Yes. Excellent, Kevin. That's well, true. I'm, I'm a little confused about what was happening because it says that he was asleep between two soldiers and soldiers were guarding the prison entrance. But during all of this time that they're talking and leaving, it's not saying what these guards are doing. Yeah. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't say that their chains or anything weird like that. It's just, I think that uh, Sherry had the right idea right from the beginning. It's meant to bring back or to, to us to reimagine that this is a coming out of the church. This is a freeing of the church from this persecution. And the fact that, um, that this angel to me has to do a whole lot of things. He's like, he has to, as if the shining light wasn't enough to wake him up. He's so asleep. He's so out comfortable on the night before his execution that the light doesn't work. He has to kind of like nudge him. Can you see that? It's kind of like this picture, this funny picture to me that he's like, Ah, angelic lights. Hey, the, the word in Peter. the word in my Bible actually is struck, like smacked him yeah. in, in the side. It's you time know, to not, wake up. Not not a tap or anything. It was a smack. Yeah, it's David, time to wake up. David, could you do that replay again? Which one? <laughs> <laughs> that the one you were trying to get me? That slap. No, where you did the whole like. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, gosh. All right, let's keep going in the story. So uh, now, verse 11 And Peter came to his senses and remarked, Now I am certain that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod and from everything the Jewish people expected. Realizing this, he made his way to, uh, to Mary's house. Mary was John's mother. Many believers had gathered there and were praying. When Peter knocked at the outer gate, a female servant named Rhoda went to answer. She was so overcome with joy when she recognized Peter's voice that she didn't open the gate. Instead, she ran back in and announced that Peter 
was standing at the gate. You've lost your mind, they responded. She struck, stuck by her story with such determination that they began to say, it must be his guardian angel. Meanwhile, Peter remained outside, knocking at the gate. And they finally opened the gate and saw him there, and they were astounded. Again, now, there's a lot of questioning up? and not a lot of doing. <laughs> yes, there you go, Kevin, great. Just the opposite, a lot of questioning and not a lot of doing. What else stands out to you? Well, it stands out to me that instead of bringing him in and going, see where he is, close the door, I never opens the door, go back to explain it and leaves him standing out there when it would have been just as easy just to open the door and bring him in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, always, oh, I've always been Buffalo that they're, they're praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And then they're going, Rhoda, girl, you're crazy when Peter's knocking on the door. What were they praying for then, you know? So. Remember, go back to that earnest, that word, same word that was used in John 17, right? They're stretching out, praying for it, the imagery being, Lord, deliver him, deliver him. And when they receive the word, they're like, huh? I'm surprised she didn't open the gate. Uh -huh. Seems like I just put myself in that position. It seems like that's the first thing I'm going to do. As soon as I recognize his voice, I'm going to open the door. So how, can, how can this be? This, this reminds me of the Bible verse, what, behold, I stand knocking at the door. In Revelation, yeah. Revelation mm -hmm. 5. Yeah. It also made me think if he escaped before and now he's escaped again, one would think that he needs shelter immediately because he's escaped again and we need to protect him. So we need to do everything instead of arguing over whether or not. And it's kind of like when Jesus first came back and appeared, people were like, well, was that really him? That whole same kind of argument. Yeah. I mean, but it also says that she, where's the verse? She was like- Astounded. With joy. And so, you know, we know that when people are under like an extreme emotional response, they don't tend to act rationally. Yeah. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, right? Kind of thing. I mean, this may be nitpicky, but would a servant have the key to the gate? Uh, likely, yeah, the servant likely would have had key. I would think they would have had keys today. That's a good question, Kevin, but I would think so. Remember, it's a gate to a compound, right? So it's not, you know, yeah. That's a good question. I would think they would, right? Because they would be the ones sent. Um, but that could be true, that she, she didn't have that sense. But I do love the picture there at the end. What's Peter doing? The whole time, Peter's just sitting there. What's he doing? Yeah, Holly's mimicking. He's knocking. If you're Peter, what in the world are you thinking? What's what going your mind? What is wrong with you is what I'd be like. I cannot believe they're not opening the door. Open the door, open the door. I think the cops saw me. Why do you think that Peter kept knocking was added to Luke, was added, or, or what that part was, um, that Luke bothered to add that piece in? I just find it interesting, the detail that he gives us. Why, what is it to do with the knocking? Do you think it's what you were talking about? No, Revelation isn't written yet, so it can't be that. I mean, it adds this human component of, I mean, I, for, I mean, for one, it's encouraging to me that all of these people are praying 
but clearly there's this nagging thought in the back of their minds that people like Herod win, you know, little people like us don't win. And then here's Peter, very much a human being, and like a human being, having to like wait at a door and knock until somebody opens it. It's he might have he might have been thinking that, well, Rhoda's going to go back there and tell him I'm here, and they're not going to believe her. I was also thinking that Peter's probably thinking, okay, you got me out of the jail, you passed all these guards, you got me to the door, you couldn't just get me inside the house. I have to stand and wait. So this one, this one's too much for you there. You left me just a little too early there, Mr. Angel or Ms. Angel. However, I, I, I wanted to piggyback on what Saji just said about the human element. How many times have we earnestly prayed and God answered our prayers and we didn't even recognize the, no. the answer or, or, or we were expecting right. some other answer, you know, or, you know, along those lines, we're just not prepared for him to answer it. Right. Yeah, well said, Kevin. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting in verse 11, real quick, just verse 11, that Peter seems to be talking to himself. Did you notice that? Uh, did I say verse 11? Yeah, verse 11, uh, let me go back and look at it. It says, at that time, Peter came to his senses and remarked. Now I'm certain that the Lord, he's, who's he talking to? He's by himself, the angel has left him. Um, others thought that was interesting and he came to his senses. What do you think he means by that? He came to his senses. Well, it said here that he he felt like it was a vision or something. He didn't even feel like it was really happening. So now he's realizing this is really happening, and it's not a vision. He's actually awake. He's yeah. actually awake now. Good, yeah. <laughs> he had his coffee. <laughs> he had his coffee, sleepwalking, no longer sleepwalking. Yeah. That makes me think that maybe it was the middle of the night, and that's why it took him so long to open the door for Peter. Could be. Could be. So why do you think then, uh, Mimi, why do you think they failed to believe Rhoda's message in your mind? Why did they not believe it when she came and said, Peter's out there? Maybe she was dreaming too. Uh, why, let's put it this way. Why not at least go and check it out? Like they say, Peter's there. Really? He's at the gate? Not a one of them who are earnestly praying can interrupt their prayer time to actually walk out to the gate. It seems almost incredulous, doesn't it? Does it have anything to do with the women's place in society at this time? It could, but it also may have to do with Rhoda's personality. The fact that she got so overexcited may say a little bit about her in, in their viewpoint as well. I think it's just human nature to doubt such events because you look at Jesus coming through the wall at the upper room and, you know, they all tell Thomas about it. And Thomas says, I'm not believing anything till I can. So, and then, you know, when Jesus was out of the tomb and they run back and tell him and they're like, you know, you've lost your mind. Right. So I just think that's human nature. Right. Um, a lack of faith. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I want to piggyback off of that in that, I mean, a lot of times when we think about people back then, we think of them as like illogical, you know, not using their brains. And then here's just an example of like, I mean, they were, they had the kind of skepticism that we would have, which is people like Peter don't escape from a government prison. Right. And like 16 guards. Yeah. 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 Well said. 
definitely he's there's a contrast here in his literature right between this these um these miraculous we'll use that term the, these miraculous actions of the angelic being contrasted right against just just the humanity i will call it that the humanity of the people involved here's Peter, right, sound asleep. He has to get not just lights, he has to get slapped around to get awakened, right? You have this, this juxtaposition, right, that's meant to show, right, just how different those responses are. Well said, yeah, you guys got it, I think. Um, I don't know that there's a, an answer to these. I just find it interesting that the church was bewilderly, bewilderingly, that's the way you would say it, bewilderingly slow to believe that God had answered their prayers. Well, maybe they weren't praying for, you know, for an angel exactly. They weren't praying for that specifically. So right. it was an unexpected answer to prayer. Good. That's true. That's true. They, it's very they may have been. They may have expected uh, his release through the legal system rather than something so miraculous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's keep going with where, uh, what, uh, what's happening with Herod in the midst of all this, because as you can see, Herod is one of the main characters here, and that's why we have to go through the entire chapter more than we would normally do in one sitting. But uh, notice now, beginning in verse 18, um, the next morning, the soldiers were flustered about what had happened to Peter. Herod called for a thorough search, and when Peter didn't turn up, Herod inter interrogated the guards and had them executed. That's not unusual in that day and time, right? We've seen that before. But this is the next part. Afterward, Herod left Judea in order to spend time in Caesarea. So the guards didn't fare very well, did they? Um, they ended up losing their lives, which was the Roman punishment for losing a prisoner. So none of that is unexpected. But however, the fact that Herod left Judea in order to spend some time in Caesarea, let me try to translate that for you, because it took me a little bit to try to figure out what's going on there. So Judea is inland. Caesarea was an island, uh, was a coastal city. So the picture here that Luke is giving us is that Herod just decides, you know what, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to go to the beach. I'm going to get out of this hotbed. I'm going to leave here for a while, and I'm just going to go and relax. That, to me, is the picture we're given here. He's going to the coast. Now, I'm sure there could be business and other things, but it just seems to me that it's like, if you're Herod and he's escaped, don't you want to stick around? You answer me here. Don't you think you want to stick around to find out what happened to this you would obviously think of him as a nemesis, someone challenging you potentially for your authority, and you just go, eh, I'm going on vacation, I'm going to the beach. I don't think, I don't think Herod viewed Peter as uh, a nemesis. I so think- why, Peter, why arrest him? Just to please the Jews, just, just to play the political game. And, and so he's escaped, oh well, that one didn't work out so good. He kills his guards and goes on vacation. So you're saying it's just not, it's not the sincerity that Saul had in his conviction. It was political expediency and he's, he's done his political theater. Right, it just wasn't that big a deal to him. All right, anybody else? The other thing that I was thinking is maybe if the people are gonna be mad or it's gonna look like Herod you know, doesn't have the power to be able to keep someone, it's kind of embarrassing to have 
lost a prisoner, so maybe he didn't want to be there for that. Yeah. Honor, shame, culture, get out of town. Yeah. I think he knows Peter will turn up again. <laughs> yeah. It's like you can't go far. Good. And, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, David, but Peter really wasn't uh, against the authority of the Romans as much as he was against the established, the religious establishment, correct? Uh, I would say that's uh, on the surface, or at least generally speaking, that's true. I think built into every Jewish male, or probably female too, but male at the time, was a resentment toward Rome for being occupied. I mean, they were home and they were in their, in their promised land, but they were occupied, so they were still, in a sense, in exile. And so there was that kind of like a built-in bias against but yeah I mean as a simple fisherman he's likely just kind of like this is this is the world I live in yeah right and Jesus did teach to to give to Rome what was Rome give to Caesar what was Caesar is right correct all right let's finish the story now in verses 20 through 23 and this is not a bedtime story for kids by the way I, I chuckle at some of the stories that we tell to our children in Sunday school growing up. Some of you, like Brenda, who's done a lot of Sunday school teaching, do you ever wonder, like, we tell these terrible stories about Jonah being thrown off the boat to appease the gods, and you've got the, and then everyone, I don't know, anyway, this is one of those stories where you, you probably don't want to read it to, to kids as a bedtime story. Herod, verse 20, had been furious with the people of Tyre and Sidon for some time. So now he's changed his focus. They made a pact to approach him together, the leaders of those two cities, since their region depended on the king's realm for its food supply. They persuaded Blastius, the king's personal attendant, to join their cause, then appealed for an end to hostilities. Verse 21, on the scheduled day, Herod dressed himself in royal attire, key, royal attire, seated himself on the throne and gave a speech to the people. Those assembled kept shouting over and over, this is a God's voice, not the voice of mere human. Immediately, an angel from the Lord struck Herod down because he didn't give the honor to God. He was eaten by worms and died. Herod has been furious with the people of Tyre and Sidon for a while. He was attempting to, earlier in the chapter, right, appease the Jews. This he saw, please the Jews. Does it seem that Herod responds to things based on how he feels or political expediency? And what's this theater all about here? Does that make no mistake? This is political theater, is it? Political and religious theater. Am I wrong? So. so does it seem that Herod responds to things based on how he feels? I think he tries to, to present himself as always being in control. And so to go dressed in all the attire with the robe and the royal and seat on the throne, it's a picture of, it may look like I, this prisoner got away for the second time, but I'm still in control and I'm still running things around here. And that, that, it's something about being in that attire 
that gives people that perception of power. Yeah. So doesn't it sound like that the crowd was paid to do this chant over and over again, that he like seated some people out there saying, you know, here, here's a denari, chant this until you're hoarse. <laughs> well, yeah, I think you can get that right. It says there they made a pact, these people from Tyre and Sidon made a pact to approach him. Since their region depended on the king's realm for the food supply, they persuaded Lastius, the king's attendants, join their cause. And then they're trying to end the hostilities. Yeah, so it's almost like, all right, can we get some people together here who are going to massage his ego and stroke his ego and make him feel like he's really powerful so that he will think that we're the best and not cause us any more trouble? That's not, that's not a stretch, is it? So what? Go ahead. Phil? I said some things never change. True. <laughs> And don't Tyre and Sidon end up getting leveled anyway down the road? Am yeah, I down the road they do. Yeah, down the road they do, yeah. They're, these aren't, Tyre and Sidon aren't the, they aren't the good people here. It's just that they, they just pale in comparison at this particular point in the story to what's happening and Herod and his, and his antics. Herod Antipas's antics. There you go. Say that 10 times fast. Yeah. This is the second angelic appearance of the chapter. So let's take a moment. Let's compare this treatment to the treatment given to Peter earlier in the chapter. Does this seem a response that's equal to the offense? I mean, what was the offense, essentially? Not honoring God. And what does that... Yes, that's, the, that's what the text tells us. What do you think that means? Well, they were elevating him when they were saying this is a God's voice, not the voice of a mere human. They're elevating him up to a level where he shouldn't be. And so it's almost like, let me really show you who God is. And let's just take care of it now. Well, and it almost reminds me of Passover and the Egyptian pharaohs who thought they were kings and gods. I'm sorry, they thought they were gods. And, you know, God equally then said, nope, you're not. Yep. And the Roman emperor thought the same. So yeah, this is this ascendancy, you know, so you have that beautiful, you guys are catching, you see the beautiful contrast of humanity, humanness, and this desire for deity, right? I'm, I'm a god, I'm to be worshipped, the people are chanting for me, right? But it also kind of makes it seem when they, when they posture themselves as being a deity or a god that they're untouchable. Right. And, and that, I think, helps them in their pursuit with the people for the people to kind of follow because if they think they're untouchable, and I think that God uses his angels to put them in his place and go, you are touchable. Does the response equal the offense? I mean, it, you, you, the implication is, I mean, he wasn't the one doing it. The people were doing it. So what's the problem? I guess but that- he paid them to do it. He got them together to present this picture. So in essence, he really was doing it because he orchestrated the whole thing. It wasn't like they were doing it because they probably truly believed that he was leveled at deity. They were doing it because they were trying to preserve themselves because he controlled the food. And so they were going along to get along so they can stay at his good graces. So you're saying he's the one potentially who orchestrated it all, not the leaders of Tyre and Sidon as I had read it. That's a, oh, I hadn't thought about that. What do you guys think about that? It, make, it makes a lot of sense. 
at least it makes a lot of sense in the way that God responded then, right? I think it has agreeable um, symmetry, but also contrast. So um, Herod went after the leader of God's church on earth and imprisoned him and attempt, you know, with the intent to kill him, but failed. And God is demonstrating his power here by striking down him as a leader. That's cool. I think, I think Herod was a type of antichrist. I think that he positioned himself to be this kind of messianic figure appealing to the Jews and making these political negotiations for, I mean, when the whole food thing came up, I was thinking about Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. Yeah. And I think God striking Herod down was basically affirmation that the kingdom of God is not going to be, it's, it's not going to be done by human political machinations. Right. Yeah, well said. I think that's, yeah, him positioning himself to the Jews as their potential Messiah. You know, that Jesus wasn't the real one. That's what they believed right at the time. And so he's like, hey, maybe take a look this way. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about earlier, you had said something about um, this mirroring the Exodus. Right. During this time. Right. And, and at that Exodus came kind of that end to these people being over them and they're really moving close, supposedly moving closer to God. Right. So maybe him, God's angel coming down and taking care of this hero was like, this is it. I'm tired of you harassing my leaders. I need the kingdom to continue to grow and to and for it to spread. And so we we you've done it twice. You haven't learned your lesson. We've got to take care of that now. Right. Yeah. He needs, I say needs. God doesn't need anything. But the the movement needs, if I could say that, a, a, a stable home base in order for these missionary journeys that we're going to read about here, first, second, and third coming on. And um, just like in Exodus, he positions himself, like Dan said, as one of those Pharaoh-type people and says, well, you know, God's not going to be able to touch me, and yet God does. And this literally does. Now, moving forward, this frees the church for probably a good hundred years or so to be able to focus in on their, their mission until some other rulers in Rome come along who um, really want to oppress, most notably Nero comes along later on. Right? So we have this period of expansion now where the church gets to go out from a solid home base, right? And that's important. They're not running for their lives. They can be out and they can be doing what they need to do. Any other quick takeaways from does a story also, like this? Does it also provide the opportunity, because we were talking about how they were earnestly praying, it shows um, them that God has answered what they were praying for and giving them this kind of period of reprieve that they can kind of breathe a little bit and not worried about everybody being persecuted and they can go about spreading the gospel. Yes, I think so. Other takeaways from a story like this that we want to that we should, uh, or that you think that appeal to you or that hit you? I have one, and that is that if we are going to um, uh, see Herod as 
glorifying himself, putting himself in a place of God. God is not just going to strike him dead, but do it in a way that is very <laughs> humbling and humiliating to him. <laughs> Eaten by worms and died. Yeah, well said. I just want to point out that uh, this is the first time I've ever heard uh, any teaching about the, the part where <clears throat> they were chanting that he was a god. It, I've always read that in the past going, well, what was he saying that would make them think that? But this is the first time I've ever been exposed to the idea of this was all orchestrated by him. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. And this is uh, lowercase g. So if you remember your, your book, Mike, you know, the, 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 the unseen realm, he's claiming to have, you know, they're, they're ascending him into that position. It's not, it's not capital, it's not Elohim God but it's above his position. It's that elevation above his position that God says, no, that doesn't belong to you. Yeah. So did it happen in that order that he, you know, a worm ate him and then he died? Usually you die and then worm eats you? Yeah, that's a, there's, there's some interesting reading that you can, um, I'll just encourage you to go ahead and Google it. Um, again, not children's material here, but there are some things written about particular um, maladies of the day that would describe, that would picture what's happening there, but basically eaten from the inside out, a very, the idea of being a very painful, humbling death. So I'll encourage you to do that. <laughs> but yes, there is a, it's a weird way of putting it. Yeah. You know what I was thinking, Joel and I were just talking about this. It, this is really kind of a message for us today as we're going through this pandemic and this shutdown. And we're seeing people are saying the church is being persecuted because we can't gather the church and you're not allowing us. And I really think this gives us a position to see, to really think about what we've been learning at the table this whole time, that the church is not the building. The church are the people who assemble and that the ones that are really crying about it are the ones who are focused on the building being the church and having to be there and not focused on the community together being able to uphold the church. That's true. Very well said. I can tell you from a, a pastor's position, as much as I, um, I don't want to say dislike, as much as I, I'll put it the positive, as much as I love our in-person gatherings around the table and I miss our meal times, I miss our being together. But to be honest with you, the month of June was really hard for me because I felt like more of my attention was being spent on how can we keep everybody safe in the midst of being together and more focus being on that than there is on what does it mean for us to be the church during this time? Does that make sense? You know, that you could get so it just puts your focus in the wrong direction and we get to be focused on what does it mean to be the church, even though, like I said, at this moment, we're, uh, we're having to do it via this electronic format. I was telling Joylin that as hard as it's been for us not to gather together, this for me has been a blessing because we're all together. So it's not like some of us are at Saturday night, some of us are at Sunday night, and then that once a month gathering, this really has allowed us the opportunity with all the craziness to go that's going on in all areas to really kind of gather all as a group with people that we don't always see. We all know each other, but we don't always see each other. We don't always get the fellowship but to really give us the opportunity to focus in as a collective group on what's important and gather. Yeah, great. Hey, David, I just wanted to point out one side thing that we, we kind of glossed over because it really wasn't 
as important to this, to the lesson. But in verse 15, what got my attention was when they assumed that it was Peter's guardian angel. Hmm. And uh, the Catholic Church teaches a lot about guardian angels. And, um, and uh, I just remember that as a kid in, in the Catholic Church, we all have an, a guardian angel. And, and this could be a source of that. that could belief. be. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Good catch. <clears throat> Any other thoughts that you want to share before we close with our time of communion? Anyone? The only thing I could think about, I guess, being old school and more of a rules guy, better be careful just how far you push God. His patience does evaporate. <laughs> I mean, think about Pharaoh. He's given 10 chances. I mean, it's, you know, Herod's given multiple chances here to do the right thing, and then all of a sudden there's this worm thing going on. <laughs> oh, no. I certainly zeroed in on that, at least me personally throughout the week studying through this, zeroed in on that earnestness of prayer, right? Mm -hmm. that, that even in the midst of all that earnestness, when the answer was there, and there's a lot of reasons why they may not have seen it, right? But that, uh, that I'm not the only one who prays for things. And then when it's answered, I totally miss it because I'm so focused on a certain kind of answer, whatever that might be. Yeah. The lesson to all the kids is, God's worms are going to get you. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Look at, yeah. That's terrible. Terrible. <laughs> That's what I'm going to tell my kids. Yeah. All right. We close each one of our gatherings here at the table in the same way. By being obedient to Christ's command to remember his sacrifice on our behalf. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.